Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number 31. As usual, I have two fantastic stories for you, so make sure that beverage is close to hand, curl up, relax. Let's listen to some stories. First up, we have a dark little tale called Nightship by Kim Westwood. Miss Westwood developed her distinctive visual prose style while working as a theatre performer and divisor. Darkly poetic, her stories have a preoccupation with humanity's capacity for destruction and equal instinct for survival. Most are set in an alternative reality, Australia. Kim has won numerous awards for her work, which you can read more about on the Triple F website. Thanks to a state arts grant, she is currently writing the sequel to her novel, The Courier's New Bicycle. You can learn more about that by following the link. It's read for you by Nicole Doolan. Nicole writes fiction, poetry and plays, and her work has appeared in a number of publications – Her stage plays have been presented in festivals. Nicole is also a voice actor who has performed for various mediums. She produces a podcast called Audio Literature Odyssey in which she narrates classic literature by the likes of Austen, Poe, James and more. Furthermore, Nicole has performed contemporary narrations for Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, The No Sleep Podcast and your very own Far-Fetched Fables. So, here is Nightship by Kim Westwood. Here the linen smells of mice and the men of old boots. I lie beneath a slaughter of ferals, cushioned in my guilty comforts and waiting for this black-cocked hulk to sink. But it glides like death along the briny channels of a shrouded city half-submerged. A gray zone, neither sea nor shore. 
Past my porthole, other night ships sliced the mist thickening on dank canals. Blunt-nosed, barnacled, they nudged from lock to lock, deals done and deliveries made under cover of a perpetual fog. Now that I am owned, ship's boy to a baron, I have been sewn up to make certain, and if it wasn't me they'd chosen for those rough-practiced hands, it would have been another. Ship's surgeon Crake, who did the work on me, doubles as a dentist for the crew, and God's help the bleeders a midwife. Midshipman Nog went to him for bunions on his toes. The lancing knife took the ends off each in one quick disconnection. Drake shouting as he cut, You'll fit a smaller shoe and use less leather. A bloody stump Nog has now, and cries at night in his bunk across the bulkhead from me. I know, since he is not captive, he could jump ship for sure at any time. But for what? For where? Gally Ma would say for Kosciuszko. A distant mountain west that climbs above our creeping winter into sunlight. But none of us, the bonded soul, have ever seen it, or will ever go. And the crew, all five of them barons including Nog, won't speak of it. Three years ago at thirteen I was bonded to my captain, a metal merchant and fur trader. Some say it's a sorry pact compared to smelter work, but she is better than most. And amid the business of it, I feel a fierce attachment. The barons, although powerful among the Iron families, are not the cruelest, and tucked between her threats or rough endearments and promises of protection, safe passage. So when she brings out the knife to tease, threatening to cut my stitches then have them re-sewn tighter, I listen with a hellish joy, and behind my pleas and protestations there is a desire for her hand to snick. Above deck the ship's bell sounds, eyes port, and it's force of habit that makes me press my face to the rimy glass as we pass below a row of bodies, heads and sacks, suspended from canal-side cranes, pacifists mainly, and any others, the infidelitous and effete that threaten the family system. From my pelted bower I hear shouts starboard and tinkly bells, the grunching of a girl barge alongside. The captain and her first lieutenant are off to spend what leisure time they have. Later, when the barge returns, she will fall sated into bed smelling of glitter and oil and a barge girl's milky seed. But it's of no matter to me. I am her true companion, kept for an entirely different pleasure. I close my eyes to the caress of air, a quick filigree touch, then the sharp edge of a fingernail down my cheek. Not my captain, but the ghost of ship's boy Aggie at my bedside. You like it too much, she says, a glimmer. I make as if to grab her, but she jinks away. An old game. She was always faster, lighter than me, a mere slip of a boy whose misfortune it was to be too lithe, too handsome at thirteen, and in the short year she had beyond that age, when fate and family collude to choose our adult occupations. Until then we are considered children and ungendered. At that deciding time we are given titles, man, woman, girl or boy, according to our station. All those in the Iron families, irrespective of their physiology, are named as men. All those of us born out of family who pass through puberty and never bleed are sewn up and called boys. We become deck and kitchen hands on the ships, and sometimes with mixed fortune, captain's companions. Others go to work in the shipyard smelters, or eek a living scavenging for scrap uranium in the waste pits. The last brings better pay, but a shorter life. Those at Monarchy, bleeders, and there are far fewer of them than us, are the only ones announced as women. Exchanged by their own families for a generous stipend, they are sent to the birthing farms for procreative duty, the iron families being mostly barren. 
and only when they are fully spent do they rejoin the populations in the Grey Zone, living out their broken spinsterhood, cared for by those of their siblings not sold at auction. But the girl barges are another thing. Decked with swaths of colored cloth and strings of bells, they are a floating misery, a tinsel jail for those youths born out of family, and whose seed has been deemed unworthy of another generation. Most of these ill-affected are drowned before they reach thirteen, but the rest the Iron families visit for distraction. Aggie used to say she could hear the crying long before a barge appeared. And now, I ask, she looks as if she might not answer. I hear it all the time. When the barge has pushed into the mist, and the decks above are silent, I seek out Nog and we sit midship, wedged under the dingy tarps, out of a sleeting headwind. His foot is bound with filthy strips of rag and festering. I want him to see Gally Ma, who's dressed my wounds many times, and has kinder hands and better medicines than Crake, but as far as Nog is down the family's pecking order, he is still one of them, and spits, pacifist. I don't argue. She's told me the story. I peer up at the soot flurries from a floating immolation beer and change the subject. Nog, can you tell where one city ends and the next begins? They are all one now, the towns and cities laced together, he replies. But the old names have been given to the locks. How far do the canals extend? As far as there is land north and south, I've heard. But I've only sailed the central stretch old New South Wales between the steel ports. Those families supply the most northerly and southerly reaches. The Surders, Presidents, and Muftis, I've never seen. I wonder what he knows of Kosciuszko. And West? Nothing. An indefinite mist. He shifts position, lifting his bandaged foot with both hands as a foul smell wafts, and taps the dinghy at his back. My escape, he says, if ever I should want it. His roomy eyes look past the cargo crane and forecastle winches to the gatling gun niched at the bow, then fix on me. This whole ship is radioactive. We are radioactive. What's that mean? I ask, although the answer makes no difference. He considers. Soon we'll be deader than dodos. I don't ask him about dodos. Those of us born into the gray zone know we are living a madness that our world is dying, and the families are getting from it what they can. From somewhere aft there comes an angry shout, the landing thwack of leather, a shrill scream, ship's boy moth, forever picked on by the crew, being punished for some petty misdemeanor. I think of Aggie. Don't you ever wish, she used to say, arms crossed about a body lean like a sapling as she stared into the mist. I would follow her gaze to where ship's lights floated in fuzzy strings and shore beacons blinked. No, I'd reply. And it was true. I had no spirit for adventure, no fire for any challenge other than my owner, whose dangerous changeability, the beckonings and dismissals, kept me hooked. But in truth there was no one more precious to me than Aggie, and I was often afraid for her. Wishing, I warned, will only bring you trouble. And trouble came, in the form of a shogun who took a liking to her features and tried to spirit her off the ship. In the fight that ensued, the shogun was killed, and so was Aggie, caught between blades. The feud between the two families has lasted a full year, and each night since poor Aggie was tipped dead into the canal, I have dreamt a ship of ghosts with her leaning from the prow, hair flying, and I, its frail, deluded helmsman, 
led by Min-Min lights across the marshlands to the snowy sides of Kosciuszko. Nagis is painfully out into the sleet and stumps off to prepare for docking. Left alone, I bring the razor blade from my boot across my forearm and feel the satisfaction as it beads a bright living red. Many things the captain will command and I will bear the marks of. But this I do entirely for myself. The scars in being captain's companion sets me apart. Aggie never cared and the privilege of the latter made me fast friends with Nog. But from the ship's boys there has always been a reticence, as if those two things laid between us have made an uncrossable divide. My captain has me on the long chain, so I can reach all parts of the cabin as I wish. Her back to me, she is taking inventory with her second-in-command. A new deal struck with the Rajas. A ship's boy maimed in a recent act of carelessness. I wonder that she can't see their third, Seraphim bright and leaning both elbows on the table. Aggie winks. The lieutenant tells the hard news to his commander last. The Viscounts have begun a new campaign of mutilation against the Muktas, he says and her shoulders lift for a breath, then drop. I thought that ended long ago. She responds low tone, and both are silent a moment, remembering. Before the Eastern Industry Alliance was forged, the families, dukes and barons, earls and emirs, viscounts, rajas and muktas, just some, were forever at war among themselves, and developed a taste for it. When they began to mutilate each other's children in an effort to champion their own line, most were left barren. My thoughts are on the captain. She had never let me see her unclothed, and instinctively I had always known why. Her second takes his leave and she stares a while, unseeing at the door, then leans down to the shackle on the chair leg and begins to haul me in. Late afternoon we moor at Southhead for a stoning. A bleeder has betrayed her family and aborted their child. I doubt she meant to, but that's immaterial. The captain and I climb the path to a high, solitary place clotted with mist and strewn with rocks. The emirs are gathered in a wide circle, their accused crouched before them in her burial shroud. We take our places at the back of the crowd, being invited guests in this not our family's trouble. As a signal comes from one, a scythe of arms is raised and the first volley flies. The woman screams once, twice, then on and on a lacerating wail above the sick thudding of stones. I wipe my sleeve across my eyes as if some dirt is lodged there. I can't be seen to sympathize. I sneak a look at my baron beside me, nothing to betray her thoughts, except, perhaps, the up-down-up of her Adam's apple and the white press of her lips. The woman topples to one side, silent now a foot released from the bloody huddle and the pooling stain from cloth to dirt. For her at last it's over, but in my belly something forlorn and wild is rising, a serrated ache that tears from my stitching to my heart. I want to turn my head and puke, but for my captain I must contain myself or be punished for shaming her family. The broken body is picked off the ground and carried to a pit at the side of the field. There she is dropped, so small, no more than rags and a little dirt kicked in. The captain goes to thank the emirs for being included on their guest list, and to say she will be sure to return the favor when the barons next have a hanging. Then we leave along the well-trod track back to our ship moored with others in the lock below. Ma says the barons dress like last-century South Sea pirates, and the other families have quite different styles. We, their bonded, are generally attired in the cast-offs, 
and can tell on sight to which family each belongs. And so it is with their punishments, which have become signature. Stoning is popular with the emirs and muktars, while the barons favor hanging or decapitation, which at least is quick. The rajas go for immolation, and the viscounts and dukes prefer public floggings where the agony is drawn out for hours. I often wonder how they find so many to punish. Are the canal cities so chock-full of dissenters? Or is it that the iron families have found, like me, a cathartic pleasure in the ministry of pain? Mornings I am sent to help Gali Ma, of Tora's straight stock, home swept away long ago. She is large-boned and reassuring, queen of her kitchen. This morning she is both hands in the soy dough, squeezing it with soothing repetition. The progeny of pacifists like her used to have their left hand, the hand of darkness, sliced off, but Ma has too. It was by Aditi's grace, she says, that I was found to have a certain talent in the kitchen, and so kept both my hands. Her forebears were among those who tried to keep the Iron families from their trajectory to power. I ask again how she escaped the Kyoto uprising, when all the rest were killed. She taps her nose, mysterious about her past. But once I overheard that she and the captain had agreements that went further back than my short life, and although she gladly takes the role of stand-in for our own mothers, she seems perpetually ungendered, neither man nor woman, but something unnamed in between. As boys filter in from around the ship, she motions us closer. Those most recently bonded and still with keepsakes, thumb-failing palm screens that flicker with the likeness of their parents' faces. I'd had one too once but it was tossed by Crake into the canal soon after I arrived on board. When we are settled, nine of us, around her workbench and fixed on her expectantly, she waves her arm towards the black socket of a porthole and begins, Today let's think of this as Venice and us as gondoliers. She describes that city of art built above canals, its floating white beauty trestled in light and eventually swallowed by the sea and I peer out trying to imagine it as a barge girl floats past, his pale face illumined by the starboard navigation lights. I gasp, and the other boys rush to look. Veils drift, gossamer about him. Sequins dot his skin like tiny stars. I am reminded of the jellyfish that slop against the hull and levee walls at turn of tide. Ma's conversation takes a different tack. It was the weathermen, she says, who envisaged this our fog-bound world, back when the skies still turned their daily blue and the sun kept us warm. Though, of course, no one listened. The skies began to darken bit by bit. But did any of us take special note the last day the red disk of the sun burnt unobscured above? Did we sear that hot image on our retina so that afterward our memories could fill the lacuna in the sky? She pauses a moment, a reservoir of sadness then looks carefully around as if to record the geometry and color of each of us. The inspection ends at moth, fresh welts congealing above the collar of her shirt. Ma slaps the dough aside to start on another piece. The day the landscape of our lives was set for change, there should have been a warning sound, a siren or a thunderclap. Instead, the machinery of old divisions ratcheted soundlessly together as the Iron families were united under one dominion. They have always paid heed to an angry and intolerant god, and so Kyoto was quelled by slaughter. But by far the worst of it was saved for the pacifists, who were an anathema to the family's way of doing business. 
We boys sit hushed above the rusting hum of the ship's reactor and the faint clicking of the ion exchanges inching us along. The images of beauty, Venice, the sun reflecting off shiny cities edged with blue, chased away and we bereft, our minds turned to what else we'd lost. Gally Ma takes pity on us and brings out her picture books. She lays them on her workbench and slowly turns the pages as we pour, goggle-eyed, over faded illustration plates. Once, she says, you could dig in the soil and find a myriad creatures, or look to the sky and see the shapes of birds. But we lost them all, except the ferals, their frail perfection barely a memory now. We are left with fog and the structures of our own making, the canals and enough industry to build a hundred ships. But for what? What kind of future here? Or perhaps the families think to conquer other countries, cleaner and more sane than ours. Her tone carries a warning, but our thoughts are stuck on something else, another beauty. Show us the thing, we implore, and then she brings out her most precious of all, a blue-green globe, and sets it spinning slowly on its stand. Never forget, she tells us, one eye to the door, that the world is bigger than this fog-bound stretch we sail, and although the iron families hold sway here, they may not elsewhere. This is more than she has ever said, and we hold our breaths at the blasphemy of it as she stops the globe, her finger pressed to a fat, familiar shape set amid the blue, terra obscura. Then she traces a flowery line to a peat contour near its eastern edge and whispers, Kosciuszko. The ship stinks, a slew of ferals being skinned on the aft deck. Their innards will go to Gallima. The rest is destined for the tannery at our next stop. I am primly at the rail in my ship's boy's best, waiting for the captain. She is off to a thirteen sail and I am to go with her. Watch your back says Nog, sluicing the bloody deck with canal water. I look at his tattooed arms working the thick bristled broom, his bad leg dragging. We both know if he goes to Crake he'll lose the leg, but likely it's the only thing between him and creeping gangrene. I wonder if he'll still be here when I return. A dinghy is lowered and then I row the captain and her lieutenant up a narrow course off the main canal, between tall buildings sitting empty, their feet in water, to marketplace a cloistered square filled with floating wooden piers. Those who've recently turned of age have been brought here for auction. The city's inhabitants shadow the arcades, hunched on all manner of boats to watch their offspring being handed into service. The money from each sale is generous. The proceeds from a bleeder will feed them for a year. But whenever one is taken by a family with a reputation for unusual cruelty, a collective sigh goes up in gusts, a hollow wind around the colonnades. I eased the dinghy toward the main viewing platform, and the family's designated bidders assembled in front. The thirteen-year-olds are gathered on a central raft, and being called one by one to the auctioneer stand. Some of them have already been marked by fate for certain occupations. Pity helped the gazelle-boned youths, eyes down so as not to catch the gaze of the barge owners, as if that might save them. The wide-hipped bleeders, so soft, so round, attract the greatest interest and fiercest bidding, their manifest fertility sought after to carry a family name. Three years ago, when Aggie and I were brought here and bonded to my captain's vessel, while those at Monarchy were winnowed out and sent to do their duty, I too thanked Aditi that I never bled, 
because although bleeders are cosseted and want for nothing, they lead a far more captive life than ours. With the dinghy nosed against the viewing platform, the captain takes her place among the bidders. I remain with the officer in the boat, trying not to look too hard into the cloisters. Then one is led onto the auction stand that stops the breath in me. Arrestingly curvaceous, clearly a bleeder, my younger sibling Ina's time has come. I wonder if this is why we are here today. I try to will it so, afraid of the other bidders, and slowly they drop away until there are only two, my captain and a shogun. The square falls silent, aware of the feud between the families. As the bid climbs, I grip the oars and call silently, and Ina's gaze seems to rest a while in mine. Finally, there is a lull in the bidding. My baron's the last, and I think she's won, but just before Hammerfall, the shogun makes another bid so high that even the families gasp. My captain, all done, gestures no more bids. But even at a distance, I feel her taut and thunderous, and know it isn't over. The shogun, triumphant, steps along the pier and up to the auction stand to claim his prize. He draws his sword as if to offer us, his competition, a warrior salute, then turns and swings, slicing Ina through. The crowd sucks in its shock, then expels it with a roar. I scream my siblings' names. The captain leaps into the dinghy, shouting, Row! They are coming at us from all sides, an angry wave, their tethered lives, tight leashes snapped, and the shoguns are all blades out to fight. The other families, caught unprepared, scramble to escape. When we are away from the square in quieter waters and making for the ship, my captain speaks to her second. They'll rise against us for what we do. This thin control can't last. The families must change their ways. The lieutenant, a baron of only slightly lesser standing, answers just as grim. If the families change their ways, they will be slaughtered. They stay silent for the rest of the trip, and I am left to row until my arms are numb and my sorrow has been plowed into the fetid, oil-slicked water. The barons are celebrating. They have sailed a flotilla of powered rafts across the marshlands and conquered Kosciuszko. The news of their success, the expedition undisclosed till now, has diverted attention from the crackdowns in the Grey Zone and been relayed to the other families, all of whom had secretly vied to get there first. And other news has reached our ship. Halfway up they found a hidden enclave of pacifists and torched it. The twelve they didn't burn they brought back to punish. My captain paces with heavy boots, six to my bed, turn, six to the door, one for every pitiable prisoner. I stay quiet beneath the coverlet in case her agitation turns to anger and she lashes out. If I had been chosen for that trip, she mutters, and I am left to wonder what might have turned out differently if she had. I am reminded that even she bends her will to a higher authority. The family's inner circle, its most influential barons. When I get the chance, I seek out Nog, always a source of information. What will happen to them? I ask. You'll know soon enough, he says, gruff and unforthcoming. Now move your molly-coddled arse and help. The ship's bilges are being emptied at a canal-side treatment plant. Hoses poke above the deck plates, fat eels, coursing with effluent. Smaller hoses loop like streamers between ship and shore sucking a fresh supply of clean water into the hold tanks. As the crew busy themselves with valves and gauges, boys are stationed at each attachment point, keeping an eye on the connections for signs they might blow. A foul and hazardous occurrence. I help Nog lock off the taps as each tank is filled, dread sitting on my bones like canker. I hope he might yet say something reassuring, but he doesn't. 
After supper, Galley Ma keeps me back to help, Moth unable to do her usual chores and my captain busy with family celebrations. She seems distracted, wiping her workbench more times than it needs, and when the other boys have been dismissed to quarters, leads me by the hand to her blue-green globe hidden in a flower bin and her picture books tucked behind the larder. The families blame the weather, she whispers, but it was they who broke us, their combined force. The right hand of retribution came down and squeezed the gray zone dry of hope. After that, it seemed we all became the shadows of our former selves. Under the yoke, no will left other than to comply. But the memory of our unmaking holds the key to being made again. And so I say to you, use these well. And don't let memory rot to nothing. Then she does a surprising thing, draws me close and kisses my head before sending me off to my master's well-appointed cabin. Perhaps it was events at the Thirteen Sail, or the capture of the Kosciuszko Twelve, but the captain seems to want more of my company about the ship. Her helmsman relieved of watch, I am allowed the privilege of nights with her on the bridge, as she commands the laden vessel through black waters, navigating by pulsing shore beacons and direction markers at mid-canal. It gets bitterly cold perched inside four screens of grimy glass. I shiver, and am slung one of her fur wraps. Cuddling into that warmth and familiar scent, I feel a lulling peace that resonates with the years I had before thirteen. My baron is impervious to the chill, her face the shape of concentration. She works the wheelhouse instruments with deft assurance, and gradually, mesmerized by the pattern of her movements, I begin to imagine her hands are my own. We stay like that hour after hour enveloped in the strange calm that night brings to the gray zone, and I think perhaps she feels it too, a companion at hiatus, brief respite from the disharmonious affairs of the Iron Families. Boots clang on hatchway ladders, figures hurry past the cabin door. All the decks locked down, the boys are being summoned one by one for questioning. Moth, going to galley Ma for comfort in the night, found her sprawled among her saucepans, dead. Nog says the confessions extracted from the Kosciuszko Twelve had all led back to her. She must have known they would, and done the deed quickly before they came for her. I feel as if the ship is tipped into a sickening lurch. Ma, love's mooring loss, the past last tether cut, and I cast adrift in a perpetual night. I squeeze tight against my chains in a corner of the cabin and thank a Didi that she's been spared the family's punishments. But I have never seen the captain so distraught. Her fist lands hard against the paneling above me and dents it. She doesn't seem to notice and lets fly again. The entire section splinters, her hand drips blood. I am frightened, even though I know it's not aimed at me or mine, but the unthinkable, her own family. I peek upwards. They will pay, she mutters. And then the realization strikes me. Her passion, not one she has ever shown to me, is that for a true love, Galley Ma's secret place inside my captain's padlocked heart? Distracted, all mood gone for play, she undoes my manacles and leaves. I wait a count of one hundred, then slip outside along the passage into the galley. Its porthole deadlights are all latched. In the dark, I stumble on a chaos of strewn pots, the place where the body had lain and is now removed. But I am not here for that, the empty shell of my beloved Ma. I am here to take possession of her globe and picture books before the barons find them.
As I hurry Ma's things back to the cabin, the ship's bell sounds, eyes port, and when her treasures are safely relocated, I climb reluctantly above deck. The crew and boys are all eyes fixed on the giant shapes rearing portside in the fog. I scan anxiously for the captain. Crake sidles up beside me. He points and sneers. What they brought back from Kosciuszko is hanging over there. The cranes have gone up and there are our angels. Ma's intrepid relatives who'd escaped the slamming grip of the iron families to live in sunshine, hung in rows like coats on hooks, each neat brown pair of hands and feet limp below the sackcloth. No more our angels than the family's seditious enemy. Now they are the dead, and decomposing with them, hope. As we come alongside just beyond, Crake mocks again. Called out to a family berthing, he clambers off the ship past Nog and swiftly disappears, a venal-hated man, into the supurating twilight. The captain gives the entire crew shore leave and goes to drown her sorrows on a girl barge. Nog, wanting to keep his infirmity well hid, volunteers to stay behind. The ship sits in mist, its cargo offloaded and abandoned on the wharf upcurrent from the spider-legged cranes still dangling their catch. The dark falls, a wet, clinging shroud. The canal wind cuts like a rotting wire. And we are huddled on the foredeck crying silently down on moth, frail and folded, crushed beneath the forecastle winch. Something, a wall, breaks suddenly in me, and I race below as if pursued by death itself to drag the heavy pelts and fat silk pillows back from my stash and spin the globe. Countries blur with sea. I stop the vivid blue-green swirl with a finger and pair close, a pair of smaller islands southeast of ours, closer, Aotearoa, home to the Iron family's long-time opponents, rumored to have helped orchestrate the Kyoto uprising. As I measure the distance and finger widths, thinking of Nog's boat and the locks that lead to ocean, Aggie rests a shimmery hand on mine. You'll drown, she says, and be eaten by fish. Is that so bad? I interject. She traces my most recent scar, unless you take the ship. The ship's boys are for it, already without Gally Ma, her subtle protection not fully realized until now. The crew, egged on by Crake, have been inflicting punishments at every opportunity. The boys, suffering, feel Ma's absence as keenly as those icy winds that luge between the levee walls. But worse, far worse. Moth, our littlest and most recent to fall foul of the Baron's casual cruelty, was adored. I go to Nog. Knowing his time is as short as ours, I tell him what I plan to do, then ask, Would you rather be sent to the filthy bottom of a canal by Crake, or come with us and be joined forever with the sea? His face is a rumpled spread of seams and stubble. Pain has made bruises of his eyes. He winces as his bad leg briefly takes some weight. Resting gratefully against the bulkhead, he makes his decision for his heart's first love. With Nog on lookout for the crew's return, we assemble in the galley to make fast our plan. How will we manage the ship? Ben the pluckiest ass after I've shown the Mautearoa on the globe. Eight is enough, I answer. And between us we have all the skill we need. If we can slip unnoticed through an outer lock, we'll be away and won't be followed. They know the sea locks are generally unattended, being used infrequently, and only for the long hauls north or south. 
the families much preferring to hop between their territories in calmer and more manageable waters. Who'll steer? Ben asks for them all. I've spent some hours in the captain's company at the helm, I say, not mentioning that Aggie, whose inquiring mind had ever risked and learnt much more than me, will instruct. Last minute, the boys waver between sure purgatory and uncertain fate, until I remind them of Gallimah's final admonition, and then they draw toward the plan as if to a distant saving light, while I wish I could feel even small measure of the confidence I pretend. And so we loose the mooring lines from their bollards and let the night ship drift, a sullen juggernaut, down canal towards an outer lock as the boys launch one last defiance sending Craig's belongings tumbling overboard. The ship pitches horribly. Most boys are sick. Its bearing sets southeast and our sights toward the hope of land. I have had to lash the wheel to stop it spinning like a gyro through my grasp, but past the anchor winch and gatling gun, Aggie leans, a five-point star above the prow, hair flying, face pressed to the wind. Nog is dying. Laid in his dinghy roped secure on the foredeck, he is being rocked like baby with the ship and smiling up at sky. From my navigator's storm-battered eerie, I look out beyond each terrifying lift and plunge to what he sees. Not the fog-bound night of moonless waters, but the wild, pale, breaking blue of day. This one made me sad and glad at the same time. I love that bittersweet feeling. I hope you enjoyed it too. Now let's move on to our second story. It's called Smoke and Mirrors by Amanda Downham. Amanda was born in Virginia and has since then spent time in Indonesia, Micronesia, Missouri and Arizona with brief layovers in California and Colorado. In 1990, she was sucked into the gravity well of Texas and hasn't managed to escape. Yet. She lives in a garret in Austin and can be found haunting absinthe bars. She isn't dying of consumption but does suffer from cedar fever and her day job sometimes lets her dress as a giant worm. It's read for us today by Catherine Logan. Catherine had many years of training in theatre and voice in her youth and then many years of teaching, acting, drama, writing and English literature as a grown-up. She has taken plenty of workshops and has studio experience in narration, commercial and animation voiceover work. Catherine is now involved in a second career, which takes her back to her first love. And so, here it is. Smoke and Mirrors by Amanda Downham The circus was in town. Not just any circus either, but Carson and Kindred's Circus Fabulatoris and Menagerie of Mystical Marvels. The circus Jerusalem Morrow ran away to join when she was nineteen years old. Her family for seven years. She laid the orange flyer on the kitchen table beside a tangle of beads and wire and finished putting away her groceries. Her smile stretched, bittersweet. She hadn't seen the troupe in five years, though she still dreamt of them. Another world, another life, before she came back to this quiet house. Cats drifted through the shadows in the backyard as she put out food. The bottle tree, her grandmother's tree, 
chimed in the October breeze. No ghosts tonight. Glass gleamed cobalt and emerald, diamond and amber, jewel-bright colors amid autumn brown leaves. Awfully quiet this year, so close to Halloween. Salem glanced at the flyer again as she boiled water for tea. Brother Ezra, Madame Aurora, Luna and Saul the acrobats. Familiar names, and a few she didn't know. She wondered if Jack still had the parrots and that cantankerous monkey. The show was here until the end of the month. It's the past, over and done. She buried the paper under a stack of mail until only one orange corner showed. Salem woke that night to the violent rattle of glass and wind keening over narrow mouths. The bottle tree had caught another ghost. She flipped her pillow to the cool side and tried to go back to sleep, but the angry ringing wouldn't let her rest. With a sigh, she rolled out of bed and tugged on a pair of jeans. Floorboards creaked a familiar rhythm as she walked to the back door. Stars were milky pinpricks against the velvet pre-dawn darkness. Grass crunched cool and dry beneath her feet. A cat shrieked across the yard. They never came too near when the bottles were full. The shadows smelled... When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Of ash and bitter smoke, goosebumps crawled up her arms, tightened her breasts. Stay away, witch! Salem spun, searching for the voice. Something gleamed ghost pale on a roof. A bird... Get away! White wings flapped furiously. The wind gusted hot and harsh, and glass clashed. Salem turned, reaching for the dancing bottles. A bottle shattered, and the wind hit her like a sandstorm, like the breath of hell. Glass stung her outstretched palm, and smoke seared her lungs. 
She staggered back, stumbled and fell, blind against the scouring heat. Then it was over. Salem gasped, tears trickling down her stinging cheeks. The trees shivered in the stillness, shedding singed leaves. Cursing, she staggered to her feet. She cursed again as glass bit deep into her heel. Blood dripped hot and sticky down her instep. The burning thing was gone, and so was the bird. Salem limped back to the house as quickly as she could. For two days she watched and listened, but caught no sign of ghosts or anything else. She picked up the broken glass and replaced the shattered bottle, brushed away the soot and charred leaves. The tree was old and strong. It would survive. At night she dreamed. She dreamed of a lake of tears, of fire that ate the moon. She dreamed of ropes that bit her flesh, of shining chains. She dreamed of trains. She dreamed of a snake who gnawed the roots of the world. On the third day, a bird landed on the kitchen windowsill. It watched her through the screen with one colorless round eye and fluffed ragged feathers. Salem paused, soap suds clinging to her hands, and met its gaze. Her shoulder blades prickled. It held a piece of orange paper crumpled in one pale talon. Be careful, she said after a moment. There are a lot of cats out there. The bird stared at her and let out a low, chuckling caw. The circus is in town. Come see the show. White wings unfurled and it flapped away. The paper fluttered like an orange leaf as it fell. Salem turned to see her big marmalade tomcat sitting on the kitchen table, fur all on end. He bared his teeth for a long steam kettle hiss before circling three times and settling down with his head on his paws. He glanced through the screen door, but the bird was gone, and the bottles rattled empty in the sticky, cool October breeze. That night she dreamed of thunder, of blood leaking through white cloth, shining black in the moonlight. No portent, just an old nightmare. She woke trembling, tears cold on her cheeks. The next morning she wove spells and chains. She threaded links of copper and silver and bronze and hung them with shimmering glass, each bead a bottle snare. They hung cool around her neck, a comforting weight that chimed when she moved. As the sun vanished behind the ceiling of afternoon clouds, Salem went to see the circus. The Circus Fabulatoris sprawled across the county fairgrounds, a glittering confusion of lights and tents and spinning rides. The wind smelled of grease and popcorn and sugar, and Salem bit her lip to stop her eyes from stinging. It had been five years. It shouldn't feel like coming home. She didn't recognize any faces along the midway smiled and ignored the shouts to play a game, win a prize, step right up, only a dollar. Ezra would be preaching by now, calling unsuspecting rubes to heaven. Jack would be in the big top, which wasn't very big at all, announcing the acrobats and sword swallowers. He'd have a parrot or a monkey on his shoulder. It was Tuesday, so probably the monkey. She found a little blue tent, 
painted with shimmering stripes of color, like the northern lights. Madam Aurora, the sign said. Fortunes told, futures revealed. Candlelight rippled across the walls inside, shimmered on beaded curtains and sequined scarves. Incense hung thick on the air, dragon's blood and patchouli. Come in, child, a woman's French-accented voice called, hidden behind sheer draperies. Come closer. I see the future and the past. I have the answers you seek. Salem smiled. That accent still ain't fooling anyone. Silence filled the tent. Salem? Shadows shifted behind the curtain, and a blonde head peered around the edge. Blue eyes widened. Salem! Madame Aurora rushed toward her in a flurry of scarves and bangles and crushed Salem in a tea-rose-scented hug. Oh, my God, Jerusalem! God damn it, honey! You said you'd write to me! You said you'd call! Paris gave way to Savannah as Raylene Meadows caught Salem by the shoulders and shook her. She stopped shaking and hugged again, tight enough that her corset stays dug into Salem's ribs. Are you back? Ray asked, finally letting go. Are you going on with us? Salem's heart sat cold as glass in her chest. No, sweetie, I'm just visiting. A little bird thought I should stop by. She looked around the tent, glanced at Ray out of the corner of one eye. Has Jack started using a white crow? Ray stilled for an instant, eyes narrowing. Oh, no, no, that's Jacob's bird. Jacob? He's a conjure man. We picked him up outside of Memphis. Her lips curled in that little smile that meant she was sleeping with someone and still enjoying it. Maybe I should meet him. Have you come back to steal another man from me? Salem cocked an eyebrow. If I do, will you help me bury the body? Ray flinched, like she was the one who had nightmares about it. Maybe she did. Then she met Salem's eyes and smiled. I will, if you need me to. Where can I find Jacob? Ray's jaw tightened. In his trailer, most likely. He's between acts right now. It's the red one on the far end of the row. Thanks, and don't tell Jack or Ezra I'm here, okay? Not yet. You gonna see them before you disappear again? Yeah, I'll try. Laughing voices approached outside. Better put that bad accent back on. The wind shifted as she left the cluster of tents and booths, and she caught the tang of lightning. Magic. The real thing. Not the little spells and charms she'd taught Ray so many years ago. Jack had always wanted a real magician, but what did a carnival conjurer have to do with her dreams, or the angry thing that so easily broke free of a spelled bottle? She followed the tire-rutted path to a trailer painted in shades of blood and rust. A pale shadow flitted through the clouds and drifted down to perch on the roof. The crow watched Salem approach, but stayed silent. Careless humming inside broke off as Salem knocked. A second later the door swung open to frame a man's shadowed face and shirtless shoulder. "'Hello?' He ran a hand through the shock of salt and cinnamon curls. What can I do for you? 
his voice was smoke and whiskey, rocks being worn to sand, but not the crow's voice. Are you Jacob? Jacob Grimm, magician, conjurer, and prestidigitator, at your service. That's an interesting bird you have there. His stubbled face creased in a coyote smile. That she is. Why don't you step inside, Miss, uh, Jerusalem? He offered a hand, and she took it. His grip was strong, palm dry and calloused. She climbed the metal stairs and stepped into the narrow warmth of the trailer. Jacob turned away, and the lamplight fell across his back. Ink covered his skin, black gone greenish with age. A tree rose against his spine, branches spreading across his shoulders and neck, roots disappearing below the waist of his pants. He caught her staring and grinned. "'Excuse my disabil. I'm just getting ready for my next act.' He shrugged on a white shirt and did up the buttons with nimble fingers. The hair on his chest was nearly black, spotted with red and gray, calico colors. Ray usually liked them younger and prettier, but Salem could see the appeal. "'How may I help you, Miss Jerusalem?' She cocked her head, studied him with otherwise eyes. His left eye gleamed with witch-light, and magic sparked through the swirling dark colors of his aura. The real thing, all right. Your bird invited me to see the show. And see it? You certainly should. It's a marvelous display of magic and légère de man, if I do say so myself. He put on a black vest and jacket, slipping cards and scarves into pockets and sleeves. Actually, I was hoping you might have an answer or two for me. He smiled. Not a coyote. Something bigger. A wolf's smile. I have as many answers as you have questions, my dear. Some of them may even be true. He smoothed back his curls and pulled on a black hat with a red feather in the band. The door swung open on a cold draft before Salem could press. A young girl stood outside, maybe nine or ten, albino pale in the gray afternoon light, the hair streaming over her shoulders nearly as white as her dress. Salem shivered as the breeze rushed past her, much colder than the day had been. "'Time to go,' she said to Jacob. Her voice was low for a child's, and rough. She turned and walked away before he could answer. "'Your daughter?' Salem asked. "'Not mine in blood or flesh, but I look after her. "'Memory is my assistant,' he laid a hand on her arm, steering her gently toward the door." Come watch the show, Jerusalem, and afterwards perhaps I'll invent some answers for you. So she sat in the front row in the big top and watched Jacob's show. He pulled scarves from his sleeves and birds from his hat. Jack's parrots, not the white crow. He conjured flowers for the ladies, red men's minds. He pulled a blooming rose from behind Salem's ear and presented it with a wink and a flourish. Velvet soft and fragrant when she took it, but when she looked again it was made of bronze, tight-whorled petals warming slowly to her hand. He tossed knives at memory and sawed her in half. She never spoke, never blinked. It was hard to tell in the dizzying lights, but Salem was fairly sure the girl didn't cast a shadow. 
She watched the crowd, saw the delight on their faces. Jack had wanted an act like this for years. But not all the spectators were so amused. A man lingered in the shadows, face hidden beneath the brim of a battered hat. Salem tried to read his aura, but a rush of heat made her eyes water, leaking tears down tingling cheeks. The smell of char filled her nose, ashes and hot metal. When her vision cleared, he was gone. After the show, she caught up with Jacob at his trailer. Ray was with him, giggling and leaning on his arm. She sobered when she saw Salem. The two of them had given up on jealousy a long time ago. Salem wondered what made the other woman's eyes narrow so warily. "'Excuse me, my dear,' Jacob said to Ray, detaching himself gently from her grip. "'I promised Jerusalem a conversation.' Ray paused to brush a kiss across Salem's cheek before she opened the trailer door. "'Try not to shoot this one,' she whispered. "'I'm not making any promises,' Salem replied with a smile. She and Jacob walked in silence, away from the lights and noise to the edge of the fairgrounds, where the ground sloped down through a tangle of brush and trees toward the shore of White Bear Lake. The water sprawled toward the horizon, a black mirror in the darkness. She made out a bone-pale spire on the edge of the water, a ruined church, the only building left of the ghost town the lake had swallowed. Jacob pulled out a cigarette case and offered Salem one. She took it, though she hadn't smoked in years. Circuses, cigarettes, strange men. She was relearning all sorts of bad habits today. He cupped his hands around a match, and she leaned close. He smelled musk and clean salt sweat. Orange light traced the bones of his face as he lit his own. So, witch, ask your questions. She took a drag and watched the paper sear. Who is the burning man? Ah, smoke shimmered as he exhaled. An excellent question, and one deserving of an interesting answer. He turned away, broken-nosed profile silhouetted against the fairground lights. These days he's a train man, conductor and fireman and engineer all in one. He runs an underground railroad, but not the kind that sets men free. His left eye glinted as he glanced at her. Have you, perchance, noticed a dearth of spirits in these parts? Salem shivered, wished she'd thought to wear a coat. Jacob shrugged his jacket off and handed it to her. This train man is taking the ghosts? Taking them where? Below. Some he'll use to stoke the furnace. Others to quench his thirst, and any that are left when he reaches the station he'll give to his masters. What are they? Nothing pleasant, my dear. Nothing pleasant at all. What do you have to do with this? I've been tracking him. I nearly had him in Mississippi, but our paths parted. He follows the rails, and the circus keeps to the freeways. So it was just bad luck he got caught in my bottle tree. Your good luck that he left you in peace. He hunts ghosts, but I doubt he'd scruple to make one if he could. So why the invitation? He smiled. A witch whose spells can trap the conductor, even for a moment, is a powerful witch indeed. 
you could be of no little help to me. I'm not in the business of hunting demons or ghosts. You keep a bottle tree. It was my grandmother's, and it keeps them away. I like my privacy. He'll be going back soon with his load. End of the month. Halloween. He nodded. That's all the time those souls have left before they're lost. I'm sorry for them, she dropped her cigarette, crushed the ember beneath her boot. I really am, and I wish you luck, but it's not my business. He takes children, Salem laughed, short and sharp, and tossed his jacket back to him. <laughs> you don't know my buttons to press them. He grinned and stepped closer, his warmth lapping against her. I'd like to find them. I bet you would. Good night, Jacob. I enjoyed the show. And she turned and walked away. That night Salem drifted in and out of restless sleep. No dreams to keep her up tonight. Only the wind through the window, light as a thief, and the hollowness behind her chest. A dog howled somewhere in the distance, and she tossed in her cold bed. Six years this winter since she'd come back to nurse her grandmother through the illnesses of age that not even their witchery could cure, until Eliza finally died and left Salem her house, her bottle tree, and all the spells she knew. Years of sleeping alone, of selling bottles and beads and charms, and seeing living folk once a week at best. We'll always work best alone, her grandmother had said. Salem had been willing to believe it. She'd had her fill of people, circus lights and card tricks, grifting and busking, the treachery of the living, the pleas and threats of the dead. Dangerous men and their smiles. Living alone seemed so much easier. If it meant she never had to scrub blood and gunpowder from her hands again, never had to dig a shallow grave at the edge of town but she wasn't sure she wanted to spend another six years alone. October wore on and the leaves of the bottle tree rattled and drifted across the yard. Salem carved pumpkins and set them to guard her porch, though no children ever came so far trick-or-treating. She wove metal and glass and silk to sell in town. She wove spells. The moon swelled, and by its milk-silver light she scried the rain-barrel. The water showed her smoke and flame and church bells and her own pale reflection. A week after she'd visited the circus, someone knocked on her door. Salem looked up from the beads and spools of wire and shook her head. Jacob stood on her front step, holding his hat in his hands. His boots were dusty, jacket slung over one shoulder. He grinned his wolf's grin. "'Good afternoon, ma'am. I wondered if I might trouble you for a drink of water.' Salem's eyes narrowed as she fought a smile. "'Did you walk all this way?' "'I was in the mood for a stroll, and a little bird told me you lived hereabouts.' He raised ginger brows. "'Does your privacy preclude hospitality, or are you going to ask me in?' She sighed. Come inside. The bone charm over the door shivered just a little as he stepped inside, but that might have been the wind. She led him to the kitchen, aware of his eyes on her back, 
as they crossed the dim and creaking hall. The cats stood up on the table as they entered, orange hackles rising. Salem tensed, wondered if she'd made a mistake after all. But Jacob held out one hand, and the tom walked toward him, pausing at the edge of the table to sniff the outstretched fingers. After a moment, his fur settled, and he deigned to let the man scratch his ears. "'What's his name?' Jacob asked. "'Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. "'You can call him Vengeance, "'though I'm pretty sure he thinks of himself as the Lord.' "'Jacob smiled, creasing the corners of autumn grey eyes. "'His smile made her shiver, not unpleasantly. "'Sit down,' she said. "'Would you like some coffee or tea?' "'No, thank you. Water is fine.' "'She filled a glass and set the pitcher on the table "'amidst all her bottles and beads.' Vengeance sniffed it and decided he'd rather have what was in his bowl. Jacob drained half the glass in one swallow. Nice tree! He tilted his stubbled chin toward the backyard, where glass gleamed in the tarnished light. He picked up a strand of opalite beads from the table. They shimmered like tears between his blunt fingers. Very pretty. Are you a jeweler, too? She shrugged, leaning one hip against the counter. I like to make things, pretty things, useful things. Things that are pretty and useful are best. He ran a hand down the curve of the sweating pitcher and traced a design on the nicked tabletop. Salem shuddered at the cold touch on the small of her back. Her lips tightened. Vengeance looked up from his bowl and rumbled like an engine. He leapt back on the table, light for his size, and sauntered toward Jacob, big orange paws walked right through the damp design, and Salem felt the charm break. Did you think you could come into my house and witch me? I could try. You'll have to try harder than that. I will, won't I? He stood and stepped toward her. Salem stiffened, palms tingling, but she didn't move, even when he leaned into her, hands braced against the counter on either side. His lips brushed hers, "'Cold at first, but warming fast. "'The salt-sweet taste of him flooded her mouth, "'and her skin tightened. "'After a long moment he pulled away, "'but Salem still felt his pulse in her lips. "'Her own blood pounded like surf in her ears. "'His scarred hands brushed the bottom of her shirt. "'You said something about buttons. "'Will you help me?' he asked later, in the darkness of her bedroom. The smell of him clung to her skin, her sheets, filled her head till it was hard to think of anything else. Salem chuckled, her head pillowed on his shoulder. You think that's all it takes to change my mind? All? You want more? She ran her fingers over his stomach. Scars spider-webbed across his abdomen, back and front, like something had torn him open. Older, fainter scars cross-hatched his arms. Nearly every inch of him was covered in cicatrices and ink. Is prestidigitation such dangerous work? It is indeed, he slid a hand down the curve of her hip, tracing idle patterns on her thigh. But not unrewarding. What will you do if you catch this demon of yours? He shrugged. Find another one. The world is full of thieves and predators and dangerous things. Things like you? Yes. 
His arms tightened around her, pressing her close. And like you, my dear. She stiffened, but his fingers brushed her mouth before she could speak. Tell me you're not a grifter, Jerusalem. I gave it up, she said at last. And you miss it. You're alone out here, cold and empty as those bottles. She snorted. And you think you are the one to fill me? His chuckle rumbled through her. I wouldn't presume. Raylene misses you, you know. The others do, too. Wouldn't you be happier if you came back to the show? The glass in her chest cracked, a razor-line fracture of pain. You don't know what would make me happy, she whispered. Calloused fingers trailed up the inside of her thigh. I could learn. He rose from her bed at the first bruise of dawn. Will you think about it, if nothing else? Cloth rustled and rasped in the darkness as he dressed. I'll think about it. She doubted she'd be able to do anything else. We're here through Sunday, the circus and the train. He stamped his boots on and leaned over the bed, a darker shadow in the gloom. I know. She stretched up to kiss him, stubble scratching her already raw lips. Her bed was cold when he was gone. She lay in the dark, listening to hollow chimes. Salem spent the day setting the house in order, sweeping and dusting and checking all the wards, trying not to think about her choices. She'd promised her grandmother that she'd stay, settle down, and look after the house. No more running off chasing midway lights. No more trouble. It had been an easy promise as Eliza lay dying. Salem's heart still sore with guns and graves, with the daughter she'd lost in a rush of blood on a motel bathroom floor. She didn't want to go through that again. But she didn't want to live alone and hollow, either. The bird came after sundown, drifting silent from the darkening sky. The cat stared and hissed as she settled on the back step, his ears flat against his skull. Come with me, witch. We need you. Hello, memory. I thought I had until Sunday. We were wrong. The girl lifted a bone-white hand, but couldn't cross the threshold. We're out of time. Salem stared at the ghost girl. Older than her daughter would have been. Probably a blessing for the lost child, anyway. She had a witch's heart, not a mother's. The child vanished, replaced by a fluttering crow. There's no time, witch. Please. Vengeance pressed against her leg, rumbling deep in his chest. Salem leaned down to scratch his ears. Stay here and watch the house. As she stepped through the door, the world shivered and slipped sideways. She walked down the steps under a seething black sky. The tree glowed against the shadows, a shining thing of ghost light and jewels. Beyond the edge of her yard, the hills rolled sear and red. Where are we going? she asked memory. Into the Badlands. Follow me, and mind you don't get lost. The bird took to the sky, flying low against heavy clouds. Salem fought the urge to look back, kept her eyes on the white-feathered shape as it led her north. The wind keened across the hills, and Salem shivered through her light coat. The trees swayed and clattered, 
stunted, bone-pale things, shedding leaves like ashes. The moon rose slowly behind the clouds, swollen and rust-colored. Something strange about its light tonight, too heavy and almost sharp as it poured over Salem's skin. Then she saw the shadow nibbling at one edge and understood an eclipse. She lengthened her stride across the dry red rock. Time passed strange in the deadlands, and they reached the end of the desert well before Salem could ever have walked to town. She paused on the crest of a ridge, the ground sloping into shadow below her. On the far side of the valley she saw the circus, shimmering bright enough to bridge the divide. No, memory called as she started toward the lights. We go down. Salem followed the bird down the steep slope, boots slipping in red dust. A third of the moon had been eaten by the rust-colored shadow. Halfway down she saw the buildings, whitewashed walls like ivory in the darkness. A church bell tolled the hour as they reached the edge of town, and memory croaked along with the sour notes. Shutters rattled over blind windows, and paint peeled in shriveled strips. The bird led her to a nameless bar beside the train tracks. Jacob waited inside, leaning against the dust-shrouded counter. Salem crossed her arms below her breasts. You said Sunday. I was wrong. It's the burning moon he wants, not Hallow's Eve. Witch light burned cold in the lamps, glittering against cobwebbed glass. His eyes were different colors in the unsteady glow. Where is he now? On his last hunt. He'll be back soon. What do you need me for? He touched the chain around her throat. Links rattled softly. Distraction? Bait? Whatever's needed. She snorted. <laughs> That's what memory's for, too, isn't she? That's why he was watching your act. You're a real bastard, aren't you? You have no idea. She reached up and brushed the faint web of scars on his left cheek. How'd you lose your eye? He grinned. I didn't lose it. I know exactly where it is. Memory drifted through the door. He's coming. Jacob's smile fell away, and he nodded. Wait by the train station. Be sure he sees you. What's the plan? I had a plan when I thought we had until Sunday. It was a good plan. I'm sure you would have appreciated it. Now I have something more akin to a half-assed idea. Salem fought a smile and lost. So what's the half-assed idea? Memory distracts him at the train station. We ambush him, tie him up, and set the trapped ghosts free. Except for the part where my charms won't hold him for more than a few minutes. That's a great idea. We won't mention that part. Come on. A train sprawled beside the station platform, quiet as a sleeping snake. Its cars were black and tarnished silver, streaked with bloody rust, and the cowcatcher gleamed fang-sharp in the red light. The platform was empty, and Jacob and Salem waited in the shadows. She could barely make out the words white bear on the cracked and mildewed sign. They built this town for the train, she whispered, her face close enough to Jacob's to feel his breath. But the Texas and Pacific never came, and the town dried up and blew away. This is a hard country. Even gods go begging here. 
Footsteps echoed through the silent station. A moment later, Salem heard a child's sniffling tears. Then the conductor came into view, a tall man, dressed like his name, black hat pulled low over his face. Even across the platform, Salem felt the angry heat of him, smelled ash and coal. A sack was slung over one broad shoulder, and his other hand prisoned memory's tiny wrist. Salem swallowed, her throat gone dry, and undid the clasp around her neck. The chain slithered cold into her hand. Jacob's hand tightened on her shoulder once. Then he stepped into the moonlight. Trading in dead children now? His growl carried through the still air. You called yourself a warrior once. The conductor whirled, swinging memory around like a doll. His face was dark in the shadow of his hat, but his eyes gleamed red. Jacob took a step closer, boot heels thumping on warped boards. You fought gods once, and heroes. Now you steal the unworthy dead, he cocked his head. And didn't you used to be taller? You! The conductor's voice was a dry-bone rasp. Salem shuddered at the sound. You died. I saw you fall. The wolf ripped you open. Jacob laughed. <laughs> it's harder than that to kill me. We'll see about that. He released memory and dropped the bag as he lunged for Jacob. Memory crawled away, cradling her wrist to her chest. The chain rattled in Salem's hand as she moved. Jacob and the conductor grappled near the edge of the platform, and she had no clear shot. Then Jacob fell, sprawling hard on the floor. The conductor laughed as he stood over him. <laughs> I'll take you and the witch, as well as the dead. The things below will be more than pleased. Salem darted in, the chain lashing like a whip. It coiled around his throat, and he gasped. His heat engulfed her, but she hung on. You can't trap me in a bottle, little witch. His eyes burned red as embers. Char-black skin cracked as he moved, flashing molten gold beneath. A glass bead shattered against his skin. Another melted and ran like a tear. She pulled the chain tighter. It wouldn't hold much longer. The conductor caught her arm in one huge black hand, and she screamed as her flesh seared. Didn't the old man tell you, woman? His companions always die. Crows will eat your eyes, if I don't boil them first. A fury of white feathers struck him, knocking off his hat as talons raked his face. The conductor cursed, batting the bird aside, and Salem drove a boot into his knee. He staggered on the edge for one dizzying instant, then fell, taking Salem with him. Breath rushed out of her as they landed, his molten heat burning through her clothes. Her vision blurred, and White Bear Valley spun around in a chiaroscuro swirl. Jerusalem! She glanced up, still clinging to the chain. Jacob leaped off the platform, landing lightly in a puff of dust. Hold your breath! She realized what was coming as he stuck his fingers into the ground and pulled the world open. White Bear Lake crashed in, 
to fill the void. Wake up, witch. You're no use to me drowned. She came to with a shudder. Jacob's mouth pressed over hers, his breath inside her. She gasped, choked, rolled over in time to vomit up a belly full of bitter lake water. Her vision swam red and black, and she collapsed onto weed-choked mud. Cold saturated her, icy needles tingling through her fingers. Did he drown? she asked, voice cracking. His kind don't like to swim, he turned her over, propping her head on his soaking knees. I could say it destroyed him, if that's how you'd like this to end. Above them the shadow eased, the moon washing clean and white again. What could you say if I wanted the truth? Jacob's glass eye gleamed as he smiled. That it weakened him, shattered that shape. He lost the train and its cargo. That's enough for me tonight. Not too bad for a half-assed idea. She tried to sit up and thought better of it. The cold retreated, letting her feel the burns on her arm and hands. Are you going to thank me? He laughed and scooped her into his arms. <laughs> I might. And he carried her up the hill toward the circus lights. Halloween dawned cool and gray. Glass chimed in the breeze as Salem untied the bottles one by one, wrapping them in silk and laying them in boxes. The tree looked naked without them. The wind gusted over the empty hills, whistled past the eaves of the house. The tree shook, and the only sound was the scrape and rustle of dry leaves. Sorry, Grandma, she whispered as she wrapped the last bottle light and hollow, glass cold in her hands. I'll come back to visit. When she was done, Jerusalem Morrow packed a bag and packed her cat and ran away to join the circus. <laughs> must admit to planning to construct my own bottle tree just outside my back door. Seems like a good idea. And that brings us to the end of another show. Please remember that Farfetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons 3.0 license, which means you can download the content and share it around, but you can't change it and you can't sell it. If you like what we bring you, please consider making a donation to the District of Wonders. Buttons are on the website. Please pop over, give us a little something. I hope you enjoyed today's show. I'll be here next week, same time, same place. Until then, take it easy. Keep smiling at the stars. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www districtofwonders.com Thank you for listening. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.